Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today on Art of the Cut, I'm so happy to be talking to William Goldenberg, ACE, about Paul Greengrass's News of the World. Billy and I have talked before about Paul Greengrass's 22 July, Catherine Bigelow's Detroit, and Ben Affleck's Live by Night. Billy's list of awards is longer than most people's entire filmographies. He was nominated for his first Ace Eddie in 2000 for The Insider, which also garnered him an Oscar nomination. He's had Ace Eddie and Oscar nominations for Seabiscuit. In 2013, he was nominated for Ace Eddie's and BAFTA's for both Argo and Zero Dark Thirty, and he won an Oscar for Argo. And he was nominated for an Ace Eddie, BAFTA, and an Oscar for The Imitation Game. Other films edited by Billy include Transformers Dark of the Moon, National Treasure, Gone Baby Gone, Ali, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and Heat. Billy, man, it is so good to talk to you again. I enjoy our discussions so much. Uh, The last time I talked to you was on another uh, Paul Greengrass film, and you said it was a little scary to start a new relationship that was a new director for you. I'm assuming that uh, you guys have a a nice working relationship uh, now two movies in. Yeah, we do. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, Paul's just, I mean, I knew immediately on the last movie that he was a terrific person and it, I, I had a feeling it was going to be a good working relationship, but it's turned into probably one of the best, if not the best, working relationships I've had with a director. I mean, he's he's so collaborative that it really does feel like a partnership. So it's been wonderful. And he's a wonderful person. And I think we're, at this point, friends. Our families are friends. So it's been lovely. Oh, that's great. What, what's the benefit of having a director use an editor multiple times? I mean, the benefits are immeasurable you know you don't have there's no breaking in period you know it's like getting a pair of boots that are already broken in (laughs) that makes you the shoes yes uh yeah i guess i'll be be the shoes that's okay what's so great about it is that you there's you're totally comfortable with each other on the day one and not on day 50 you know oftentimes when a new relationship with a director what happens is there you meet them a little bit you know you get hired you go on the film you've taught i've made several discussions but then they're shooting and you get then from then on during the shoot, you get sort of a distracted director. You know, they have so many things on their plate. And then when they are looking at cut footage, mostly they're looking at their own work. What do I need? What did I miss? You know, they're not really examining the editing in the way they will when we're in post-production. Paul and I or the other, I've had several directors that I have, you know, multiple films with. You just go in, like, it's like hitting the ground running, you know, as opposed to sort of getting up to speed. And, now, and also we have a, Paul and I now have developed a shorthand about stuff and I came to the set a lot on this film, which I don't usually do. And Paul had me come to make sure that we were both agreed that this is the right direction for the tone of the film, the tone of Tom Hanks' performance. So, you know, it just, so that made this show even more fun than the last. And uh, it's also a little more upbeat subject matter than the last one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You mentioned uh, shorthand. Can you explain like something that would be a shorthand that you de- you developed or just made things faster? Well, the, the th- what makes things the best thing is that, and he said this to me on the first film, 22 July, when it was time for me to show him the cut, he said, look, 
show me the cut you want to show me. Don't, you don't have to leave everything in, you know, take it out what you want to take out, trim it how you want to trim it, move things around how you want to move things around and I'll see the movie. I know my own material. If there's something I miss or I don't like, I'll tell you. And if I want to see something you took out, I'll tell you and we'll put it back in or we'll look at it and decide whether we want to put it back in. And that, that direction didn't come to me until very near the end of the shoot. So going into this one, I knew right from the get-go that I could basically do whatever I felt was right for the film. And so when I would sh I showed him scenes early on where I had took the, taken things out, trimmed it down, and he shoots with the idea of bringing things down. I mean, I've never had this direct conversation with him, but my feeling is what he does is overwrite the scenes, add extra dialogue, knowing he's going to take it out. Because when there's short scenes, I have this, I think what he's doing is he, in, in an effort to get the actors to uh, really immerse themselves, get into their parts, being able to improv, he gives them extra stuff to do, knowing he's going to pull it back. So that they don't, you know, like a scene might be only a page long, but I'll give them an extra half a page of dialogue and it gets them revved up. You know, they get into their, they get into the moments deep, more deeply. And then, and so I, I instinctually know now that I can cut those things back. When we get to post, I think we're much further along. It's not really an assembly anymore, editor's cut or whatever you want to call it. I think when we get to that point, it's more of, you know, we're in progress to, to the director's cut at that point. We're already, we saved a lot of time, maybe a couple of weeks. You know, we've talked all the way through and um, he had the guy, the lead singer of Mumford and Son is a friend of his and uh, he brought him to the cutting room. And I, don't know, I think he, they must have had a tour date in Santa Fe. It was pre-COVID when there were concerts. And he brought him into the cutting room and he says, and I had a bunch of new material and he just said, oh, I just run it. We'll just run it. And I was just like, oh my God. And I, you know, I'm so not, I'm so, you know, nervous about things that, when they run for the first time. But luckily everybody liked it. But it was, you know, he, that's the kind of trust we have in each other and he has in me. So, so I think that's the most valuable shorthand is the, this unspoken do whatever you want, you know. One of the things you mentioned a second ago was about tone, that he brought you on the set and sometimes, hey, you know, do we have the tone right? That's a big thing for a director. It's one of their main responsibilities is setting the tone. How are you helping set the tone other than going on set? Well, I'm obviously setting the tone by the kind of temp music I put in, the sound design. Once you shoot something, that's some of the, obviously it's a lot of the tone is ingrained, you know, but you can obviously slide things one way or the other by music, by pace, by sound effects, sound design. It depends on the, the variety of performance you're getting from actors. Al Pacino is somebody I cut in a couple of films and he gives you, you know, from A to Z a lot of times, like screaming, whispering, and everything in between. So you can really mess with the, pay, uh, the tone there. But getting that consistent tone is one of the most important and difficult things, I think, of cutting a film. So... If that doesn't work, then you, it feels disjointed and it feels like, well, you know, it just feels like they, nothing is living in the same world. Uh, we talked several times for Detroit and 22 July, and I know you cut Imitation Game and Zero Dark Thirty. There, there are a lot of movies that seem to have like a political or social commentary and help add to the societal discussion. Uh, is this film like that? Well, it turns out that it is. I mean, it takes place in 1870, about five years after the Civil War, when the country was very divided still, you know, even though it was five years later, Texas was deciding, you know, if they were going to get back into the Union or not. There was still a lot of hatred between the North and the South. The, South, the Southerners looked at the Northern Army like their occupying army type thing. And I think that that's very relevant to what's happening today, too. So 
we didn't know that it was going to be so relevant, but as things got more divided in this country, as is certainly this year has gone on, and then obviously with the the COVID, with the pandemic, it's really become a lot more relevant. You mentioned COVID, and also you mentioned going on set. Tell me a little bit about when you shot and when you moved back to LA, that kind of stuff. Uh, we shot from September to Thanksgiving, uh, and I was on location you know, just in an office in Santa Fe. But we were always, the furthest I think they ever shot was 45 minutes from from Santa Fe. So I was able, even when we were that far away, which is not that far, I was able to drive out, spend half a day there, come back and still be able to cut. You know, it made for long days, but that was okay. You know, I just was, I mean, for me to be that involved in the shooting, I mean, I, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's like, it's such a rare opportunity to have that kind of input. And, um, I, and I even work with Paul in the screenplay on this film. Like last summer, I went to London for a couple of weeks and um, we sat down and hashed out all the way through the screenplay as he was writing it. So that was nice to have input there, you know. Anyway, so after, we, after Thanksgiving, um, we spent the holidays here in L.A. And then afterwards, I went to London in the beginning of January. And I was in London, as Paul lives there. All the way through March 14th or 15th when, you know, the whole world shut down. We were, I was actually coming back to the States anyway to uh, show the studio the film. And I, I just, so I kept the same plane reservation. I just never went back. But after we got back in the middle of March, I think it was about two, three weeks later, our producer, Greg Goodman, just took the reins and said, we're going to go back up. Everybody got it, you know, we made many copies of the film and everybody worked from their houses. I had assist, two assistants here in LA, three assistants in London, a visual effects editor, a music editor, all in different locations. And um, we made it work, you know, things took a little bit longer, but technology is to the point where it made it pretty smooth. I mean, there were times you had to wait a couple of minutes, but I mean, considering we got to keep working and and uh, we got to finish the film and we used Evercast, the director and I used Evercast to be able to communicate to each other and he's able to see my work and it was pretty seamless, I have to say. Um, and uh, we, we, we wrapped up, it, we were supposed to finish in June, we ended up finishing in July and then we waited two months to preview because they were waiting for the situation to sort of level out COVID-wise. Uh, we previewed a couple of times, made some additional changes, and then we just last week finished uh, finished the mix again. Yeah, so it's, it was on the film over a year, but it was, supposed to, it was supposed to be from September to June, and it made it September to a little hiatus in there, September to last week. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to see this film, so I'm going to have to have you guide me a little bit in our discussion. Can you think of something that would be educational a lesson that you learned or a lesson that someone else could learn as an editor from something that happened on this film whether it was something you had to change something that occurred to you like oh i could do this here's this problem i have the thing that was difficult about this film i don't know if this is really answering the question but the thing that was difficult about this film is all the distance i mean having the distance between working and I'm, I'm talking about time now like having three weeks doing nothing and then going back and then finishing and then having two months and then going back. And then we previewed and had three weeks. I mean, everything took so much time. Uh, I did learn that, I guess it's patience, you know, that you're so angry. And I've always sort of been a fairly patient editor, but it's just amazing how if you use that time well, you know, I was able to see the film in a completely fresh way. And I think the film ultimately was for the better because I was able to see it fresh on so many different at so many different times. I mean, usually I think for I assume it's the same for other editors. You know, you see a film so many times that some screenings are very valuable 
and that you feel like you're seeing it for the first time or seeing it fresh. And sometimes it feels like, oh my God, here we go again, this scene, now this scene. And it just kind of washes over you a little bit. And you're seeing it, but you're not really seeing it like an audience sees it. So, and I, I, can't, I relearned, I guess, that the process is important and the patience is important. That you won't know in week one what you're going to know in week 10 and not try and be very like drastic with your changes and like let it uh, let it evolve you know i think that that was on so many levels that made me a more pa- even more patient editor which i sometimes can get very like okay how do i fix this now how do i do this now how do i get it how do i get it perfect right now right now and uh, and the understanding that that's going to kind of sometimes take some time i mean the only editor i know who can do it seemingly perfect every time is Michael Kahn <laughs> where he just seems to like oh yeah I'll cut it this way oh that looks great perfect <laughs> you know but um, I think most mor- mortals take a little more time so I did learn you know I- unfortunately I'm not going to be afforded with all that time uh, on a lot of films but I think it's going to be valuable going forward just to have that sort of trust that it's going to work out you know the, the objectivity that affords you to have stepped away for that long and see a cut, you know, a lot of people, and I don't know whether you're one of them, but like you, sometimes when you, when you don't have the time, you cut a scene and set it aside so that in a week you can come back and look at it again. Oh, wow. I either totally failed or I did a pretty good job, right? It's interesting that a, a couple of films that I've heard of, especially films where like a lead actor gets injured, those films really benefit from the, the time off. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's one of the sort of blessings, curses of the movie business. You know, the, you don't really finish, they just sort of take it away, you know. But at the same time, it, there's a wonderful thing about that. You, the relationships, you meet so many people and, you know, you, everything is always fresh. You know, you're on a film nine months to a year, or maybe sometimes a little more, a little less. But then you get reinvigorated every time the movie comes, you know, another movie comes and it's like, it's a whole new set of people, a whole new set of challenges, a new story to tell. So that's wonderful. But it is, I mean, there are films where I like, I wish I had done that or I wish I had done that. I mean, I don't think it's ever affected the box office or the quality of the film, but in my mind, like, I wish I could go back and take those four shots out or switch the order of that or something, you know? So I think the movie is, uh, I know the movie is sharper and better for having had the time so I guess that's one sort of small, tiny benefit of having this horrible pandemic. <laughs> As I said, I haven't seen the movie, but in the trailer, there's a guy that says, they pay you to tell stories? I didn't know something that was something a man could do. Did you feel a kinship with Tom Hanks' character? I, I, I could see. I never thought about that, actually. And now that you say it, I think, I think that there is a kinship in that, you know, that you're sort of, you're guiding the audience to see a story a certain way. And that's what he was doing. You know, he... What he did was he would go from town to town and a lot of these towns didn't get all the papers from different parts of the country and different parts of the world. So people did go and charge a small amount and he, he you know, set up a, like in a barn or a church and, and, and read the news. And he was a master storyteller. Love it. Is it a fairly linear story? Is there any intercutting or jumps in time? Uh, there's jumps in time because it's a four-month journey that we're obviously compressing into two hours. Um, but it is a pretty linear story. And the, the challenge of it was there's no B story. So you're with them the whole time. So there's no like, oh, let's cut to the other story and we'll overlap and cross cut. And there, you can't do that um, in this film. So it's a question of 
keeping the pace going, but still making it feel like it's a journey. You know, you don't want to upcut it so much that it feels like, wait, that isn't four months, that like four minutes, you know. If it's all slow or it's all really fast, it's going to feel boring. You can make the whole thing super fast, make it, take a two-hour movie and make it an hour and a half, it's going to feel longer because you need dynamic range, you need highs and lows. And, um, and you know, for me, it's, I, I don't know how other editors do it. For me, the, where things should slow down and speed up, sometimes it's just obvious in the script, but... Other times it's just by feel, you know, you're just feeling like, okay, we've just had this big, very big set piece in the, in the center. And so after that, we don't want to like fly into the next bit. We want to like let the audience settle. And because the, the, the characters are sort of regrouping and the characters are sort of settling like in their mind, well, what just happened? You know, like, how do we, how do I even deal with this in my head? So you, you want to let the audience experience what the, what the characters are experiencing. So you want to like let, put them in that same mindset. Paul Greengrass would refer to it as, living in the scene or skating over the scene. Even in the fast-paced stuff, you want the audience to live in there, but then they're accepting of that because it's, it's nervous and it's tense and, and so that you accept that sort of quicker pace. But then when it's time to slow down, you know, you have to slow down with the, with the characters so the audience will slow down and be able to absorb things. So a lot of that, by, to me, is feel. You know, you just sense it when you're watching it. They're just zipping through this. It's like people aren't going to get this. People aren't going to feel it, you know, because... It's one thing to intellectually understand something, the, the, uh, whatever the characters are going through, but it's another thing to let them feel it, you know, to, for them to feel what the characters, you know, to, to get inside them and really, like, understand so you, they feel like they're experiencing it so long with Tom. Because there's always something relatable in every character. So even if it's a bad guy, you want to make those everybody three-dimensional and, and you want to make everybody feel like, you know, you understand where they're coming from. It's not just some, like, guy with a black guy. The bad guy's not just some guy with a black hat, you know. He's, like, in, with a gun. That You see how he got there, you know. And that makes that makes stories really, really sing, you know. That makes stories really deep. And, and people walk away from your film and they'll, and they'll remember it, you know, as opposed to, eh, hey, that was fun. Next, what are we having for dinner? As opposed to thinking that the next day and the next day, well, you know, that really landed with me. And, and I think that's the difference, you know. You want to really let the audience soak in that world. So you just have to figure out what those moments are. How much of that is contextual and how much of it, as you said, oh, you know it because you read the script and here's the fast scene and here's the slow scene. So when you're cutting, I'm assuming out of order, maybe you cut a scene too fast when it's out of order and then when it gets in context, you go, oh, I got to open this up? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, <laughs> like if, oh, one example is uh, there's a, one of the readings in the in the film where things get a, go a little sideways because of the you know, again, the, the budding of hedge between the North and the South. And Tom is able, or Kid, Captain Kidd, he's Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, he's able to sort of calm things down so they don't, you know, blow up into a fight or even something worse. And my son came to, my 20-year-old son, he came to Santa Fe, and I showed him the scene, and I hadn't looked at it in context. I had looked at it, but I hadn't really looked at it. You know, I had strung the stuff together. But So I showed him the scene, and he, he looked at the, and he thought it was good, and looked at the end and goes, I think it's good. I think what's happening at the end is happening a little fast for me. It doesn't feel real. And then I looked at it through his eyes and I was like, he's absolutely right. And I slowed things down at the end and it became, it wasn't like he didn't believe it before, but then it became real. Now that you know, the scene is time to breathe at the end where you feel like, okay, this could happen in this time frame. And that's why I love having somebody else in the room. I see it through their eyes. But yeah, you cut it with your best guess, you know, about where it sits in the movie. And, you know, I'll always read like three scenes before the scene I'm about to cut and three scenes after to get my, you know, my mind fixed as to where, where we are in the story. But, you know, nobody's perfect. So 
you do your best and then you go, yeah, this is, I'm jumping into this scene so fast. Or you might find I'm like, I don't need the first half of this next scene because it's all clear. So let's jump into the middle of the next scene. But, you know, that's part of the, that's part of the process that we were talking about before. So as you, you go on through the 10 weeks of the director's cut and then however long the producers have and the preview process, you start learning, you know, you really get to know the film even more intimately than you did before. So, you know, yes, of course, you, you know, in, in context, they, everything changes. I love it. Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree then. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a good education, I have to say. I mean, he, he, he really gets the story in a way that I find very impressive. And, um, he sees things all the time that I that I'm like, wow, that's actually yes, great. I'm, I'm, you know, it's great to have your son. <laughs> when you're impressed by something, your son says a very. It's as a father, you feel like, wow, I did something right. <laughs> I've watched TV with my son before and caught him at a young age, like eight or nine or twelve or something. He was like, ah, that can't be the right guy. It's only forty minutes in. That can't be the. Yeah, right. <laughs> this has got to be the red hair. <laughs> that guy's not going to die, right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Billy Goldenberg. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Aries Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Billy Goldenberg. We talked about uh, regulating tone. How important is perspective, either in this film or in any film? Do you decide what the perspective is, or do you have a, have a discussion with Paul about perspective? Yeah, we had a lot of, t- we had a lot of a discussion about that because it's, it's a very sort of lonesome, but it, you know, he is a very, there are very few characters in the film, and it's Tom and... And the little girl's name is in the film. Her the actress's name is Helena Zengel, but her character's name in the film is um, is Joanna. It's going to be one of their points of view because, or both of their points of view. And we had a lot of discussions in the screenplay phase about what the point of view of the story is going to be. Is it going to be the two of them? Are we going to meet meet them individually? And we went back and forth about how to start the film. So it because we decided that it was important that it would be told from mostly from Tom's perspective or from his point of view. So we had to keep adjusting the front of the film to stay with that vision. And we got away from it at one point in the cutting, and then we came back to it at the end. It would be from Tom's point of view. I mean, you really were, were able to feel what Joanna was feeling and see through see things through her eyes as well. But it, it really mostly came down to this is Tom's story, Tom's character's story. You know, that both characters need healing, but his is the one we're going to concentrate on. It really was a constant discussion, like from last, like the last summer, not this past summer, the summer before that, <laughs> from basically the beginning of the screenwriting phase in June all the way through the shooting. Because Paul is constantly rewriting during the shooting. Um, he's constantly honing and honing and honing, you know, every day. And that's why it's important that I'm on location with him, because not only is he seeing cuts every day, but he's also 
feeding me pages almost every day. We have a whole sort of system. I get pages at night and in the morning I talk to his development person, Emily, and we then discuss our notes on these pages and then we and then she we whittle them down to the really core stuff and then we give them to Paul and he takes some of them and doesn't take others, you know, or I'll say, yeah, we could lose that or we could do this this way, but I want to do it this way because, you know, um, and sometimes that's why what I was speaking about before, I want to, I said, we could drop these lines and he'll say, well, yeah, we could, but I'd rather shoot him and have you drop him. So it was, it's just a wonderful way for me to get inside the, his head and get inside the story of inside the the film's head if it you know what i mean like the, like you get immersed to the point where you feel like you're in the world with them so all that stuff lends to that for me so it's great i'm really impressed that he asked you to come out to help with the script obviously editors we consider ourselves storytellers what do you think it was that he said this guy knows story and he can help me. How did that relationship happen that he would ask you? On 22 July, I, I met him after the screenplay was written, you know. It was a very fast thing. He he wrote the screenplay, I think he finished it in August, and they were shooting in October. So he called me, I was in New York on a film, he called me in September, and it was like, we got to go. You know, like, do you want to come to Norway, like, in three weeks? So we didn't have any time in the beginning to sort of even know each other. I met him, I met him in person the night before the first day of shooting in Norway at the hotel we were all staying at. It was a little slow in terms of getting that relationship started because he was shooting and he, they were on like these different locations in the time. And it was like no daylight because it's Norway in the winter and it was just a really crazy shooting schedule. And, but then as we went on, he started sending me those pages every night. Take a look at these, see what you think. I mean, tell me what your thoughts are. But tell me soon because I'm shooting him tomorrow. <laughs> so I guess my sense is that he must have thought what I was doing made sense. And actually, even before that, he had two versions of that script. One where the attacks were told in flashback, is 22 July, and one where it was in, in, in real time. And I felt strongly that the film should, have been, should be the way it is now, in, in real time. And we talked about that a lot before we ever met. And it was like very early in our relationship. And... And I think we both landed in the same place. And I think he respected the reasons that I had for doing it that way. And then it was, again, when we got to shooting and he was giving me pages and I was giving him notes, which I assume he liked. And then when I showed him the film, because I, I think I took 40 minutes out of the film before I showed it to him the first time. So I think it made 35 or 40, I can't quite remember. Um, and I restructured things as I was watching it with my assistant. I was like, oh, this feels like it should be here. And this feels like it should be here. And I moved things around and I, and I, and he seemed to like everything I did. I mean, he didn't undo any of it. So I think that must've been, I'm just guessing now you have to ask him, but I'm guessing that he saw that I sort of knew instinctually how a story should be told or that story should be told. So then I, you know, and then in all our discussions and about other movies and theater and books or whatever, he had a sense that um, I maybe knew what I was talking about or I fooled him into thinking. I probably fooled him into thinking <laughs> I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> that you were simpatico. Yeah, so we saw things. We were seeing the same movie and in this particular, in, in News of the World, we there was an original screenplay which Paul rewrote and then and then there was the book. So uh, Paul's similar to me in that he, I think he he doesn't always listen to what, the suggestions, but he he hears it and he takes it in. He listens, but he doesn't take them. No, he would listen and then and then he would take the ones he wanted. But I think for him, having another person involved in that process, like I'm saying, like I like to have somebody in the room because I see it. I, I think that, I, I, again, I'm speaking for him and I may be totally wrong, but I get the feeling he likes 
that likes that as being part of the process that it pushes him. Usually he'll do something that does what I was talking about, but it's better. Well, that's something that I've talked about with many people is that a lot of times a bad idea, not saying your ideas are bad, a bad idea can lead to a good solution, right? Yeah. So that's why there's no bad ideas, you know. And a director may have, you know, happens to all editors, a director may say, oh, I think we should do this and do it by doing X, Y, Z. And you do X, Y, Z, and it's not what, you know that it's not what he was intending in terms of the outcome. So, of course, you want to show him that. But then you also want to say, I I, I think what you were going for is this. And so I did what you said, but uh, I think what what you're trying to get to might be this. So I did another version or another two versions that might be more in that direction. So I, I think those are the kind of things that enables trust in the relationship. You know, that you're do you're you're doing exactly what he said, so you're not ignoring him. And but you're also trying to bring something to the table and say, like, I saw I see it another way. I see maybe we can get there by a more like a more clever way or just a different way that's a little more outside the box or whatever it is, you know? And I think that's a similar process that Paul goes to with his writing. Because he also includes Greg Goodman, I was mentioning before, a producer. He'll include him. And he has a terrific relationship with my first assistant, Peter Dudgeon, who has a, he has a master's in screenwriting. He's a, he was a theater actor. And he just knows story as well. So he'll, he'll ask Peter to read the script and, and, uh, and give him feedback as well, you know? So he... He likes to have a lot of voices, but then he's very good at just sort of then tuning all of it out and then doing everything better than we all had ever suggested. <laughs> so I mean, that's the, you know, he's, I mean, he really is an auteur in terms of that. I mean, he, he knows what he wants. He knows how to get there. He, he is incredibly thoughtful. It's, it's all his film, you know, I mean, he, but he accepts all the help he can get from the people he trusts. This is not a usual thing of a director saying, cut it the way you want to cut it. I'm assuming you have worked with other editor, directors as well, where the editor's cut is not really an editor's cut. It's an assembly made exactly the way the script is written. Yeah. I mean, I would never... In fact, <laughs> when Paul first started, told me to do it on 20th July, I thought it was a trick. I thought it was a trick, you know. I, I thought, uh, <laughs> is this real? Like, am I going to get... Mm, I don't know, you know. I Literally, because this never happened before. I mean, I saw Michael Kahn and Steven Spielberg had a similar relationship. You know, I think that Paul even lets me go further. I mean, they've, Michael and Steven have been working together for like, I don't know, 40 years. I think it's 40 years at this point. But yes, in most films, I would never do that. I would cut the script, make everything work as best as I could. I mean, and it would be long, but it would be a movie. But, you, you know, and you would see places, you know, half that scene's coming out or those lines are going to be. But, and I might ask to do that. I would say like, what do you think we need these lines on the phone? And they would say, yeah, well, maybe not believe them in just so I can see them. So no, I mean, it's, it's the first time I've ever, it's the only time and uh, that I've ever had that kind of relationship with a director. You know, like I said, he's seen every scene cut. He's seen, you know, he's, we've, it's not like he, he never looks at it or he never looked at it, you know, he, he knows what he shot and he, and I'll show him the scene separately and he'll say, yeah, you're right to take that out. Or like uh, there are a couple, one or two scenes in this film that I did take out that we did put back in. I think it may have been one now, but I can't. Might have been two. I can't remember. But he's brilliant, and he knows what, he's, what he knows. What he has, he knows the story he's trying to tell. So I think it just helps him move the ball down the field. You know. Uh, did you read the book? Um, I'm assuming before you edited the film. Yeah, I did. I did, and I generally tend not to when there's a book. But he asked me to read the book, so I, you know, because we hadn't he hadn't written the script yet. Because the other books I've worked on, Unbroken, Sea Biscuit. Imitation Game was based on a 
not, it wasn't called The Imitation Game in the book. The reason I'm telling the story is because on Seabiscuit, I did read the book. I read the screenplay, which I loved, and then I went back and read the book. And then when I started talking to Gary about the film, and I think it was even when we were shooting, Gary Ross, the writer-director, I was, a few times I said, well, in the book, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then in the book, and, and then at the, I think the third time he stopped me and said, this isn't the book. We're making this script about this particular story part of the book. So yeah. I don't want to hear about the book. So <laughs> it got me in a little bit of trouble. I mean, he didn't like yell at me or anything, but it got me in a little bit of trouble. And I thought, you know something? It's better to concentrate on the, this script and the story I'm making because Seabiscuit, what Gary did was so, so brilliant. He took the book and the themes and he made it a story about family and a father and you know red pollard like a father and son relationship and which is in the book but you know not really and he he made a specific story you know confined to this little slice of what was happening in that grand book and it made it a more micro instead of macro and i think that's what made it a great story where i've seen other you know adaptations of of books where it's like, it's just like rehashing what's in the book. And then this happens and this happens. It's not getting really inside the story and making it like a relatable story. I think he, I mean, it's a great book, but I think it, the book just as the book wouldn't have been a great movie and where Gary was able to grab onto threads that were universal and, and, and made for great stories of that length. I, I worked on a movie that was based on a book and I didn't read the book. And where it helped was... I saw a bunch of places where I'm like, it's in the book, it's not in the movie, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You're like, you remember this from the book. I do not, and so therefore I don't understand this whole story point. Right, right, yeah. What do you do for inspiration? What's your muse? What do you do when you're not cutting? Oh, I do so much cutting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think the thing that helps me is I listen to a ton of music especially with these lovely EarPod Pros, you know, where you feel like you put them in um, you know, noise reduction mode. And I just find that like recharges me and, and I think it helps with rhythm, you know, in a way, like you feel like you're doing something, you're listening to something rhythmic and, and it, you know, that tells its own story. And so I, I, I do like, I do, I do listen to a lot of music and that recharges me. And, um, and strangely watching other films too, you know, a lot of people say, how do you watch movies after you've worked on a movie all day. And I said, well, it's not the same thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not working on that one. I mean, I'm not, I'm just enjoying it. I think that seeing great films or even great now, there's so much great television. I think it gets me like charged up. Like I want to do that too, you know? And I go in the next day with a real head of steam, you know? I think it's seeing other people's work, whether it be music or art or other movies, television shows, um, reading books, you know, that I, it just gets me like, I get so excited about stories that I feel like, I don't want to let this one down. Do you know if that makes any sense? Like I, I, want, I want this story to be everything it can be because I just saw something or heard a piece of music that is so perfect that I, I just, it feels like a challenge almost. And, um, you know, and then there's also the fear too, you know, the, the fear is definitely keeps me on my toes of the fear. You know, I don't think it'll ever go away. I think if it goes away, I'll stop being an editor. You know, the, as long as I, I mean, I've been cutting on my own for, I don't know, 25 something years and, I still feel the same like anxiety of like wanting to get it right and going in every morning and not want to disappoint the director or disappoint myself or, you know, disappoint the studio. Um, so I think there is a, um, if it's channeled correctly, that, that fear is really keeps, 
keeps an edge, you know. And I and you're certainly not the only one. I, I think it's wonderful that you can admit to that because there's so many less experienced editors than you that probably feel the same way. Like you go in in the morning, like, I don't know if I can cut another scene. I don't know if I can do this. Mm-hmm. But even like I talked to Carol Littleton, I mean, <laughs> a fantastic yeah, yeah. editor. She said the exact same thing. It's She doesn't know when she goes into the office whether she can cut the scene or not. I mean, almost every scene I cut, especially big sequences, I look at all those, especially when you get like seven hours in daily, of dailies for a four-minute dialogue scene, and you're like, oh my God, I don't know, I have no idea how to cut this. Like, none. I just don't know where I'm going to start. But then you, f- you watch the dailies and watch the dailies and watch the dailies, and you find things to grab onto, and I know I can start on this shot, or this shot's going to be a great end shot, or this is the middle, or this performance is definitely the one, you know, for this four lines or whatever it is. And then you start, uh, Michael Kahn, who's my mentor, used to refer to it as losing your forebrain, you know, where you just go in in the morning at 7 a.m. and then you stop cutting and it's eight, nine o'clock at night. You're like, what happened? And there's a scene. (laughs) I feel like that's doing it instinctually is the only way I know how to do it. You know, I had a director who um, had some computer program about like, okay, well, at minute 60, this is supposed to happen or something, and then minute 75, then this is, and I'm like, I don't think we can really make a movie that way. I mean, I'm sure it'd be a movie. It might not be a good movie. Uh, I just think that that, you know, it's like people refer, it's like, do you have a button that'll cut this together? You know, like, you know, at a certain point, I'm sure there'll be computers that just cut stuff, like, without having to... Let's let's hope not. Yeah, well, but I think (laughs) you can never get, there's no way to get human emotion, and, like, what's coming from an editor or the director or screenwriter you're just never going to get it that way to be, it's going to be robotic because it'll be done by somebody who doesn't have any emotion or something that doesn't have an emotion or a, a feel, you know, or a feeling. They, you know, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that the skill of editing will ever be unnecessary. How much of that feeling is empathy or is that what you mean by feeling? Are they two different things? Yeah, I mean, feel like a feel for the craft, you know, like a, you're good at it. You're, you have, a, you have a, um, a natural inclination to it. But when I, I, yeah, but making an audience feel something is, I think, a skill that could never be done by some machine, you know. I mean, I think that, and I think you have to feel, you have to be a sensitive person who, who is in touch with their emotions to be able to do that. I mean, um, I look at, when I'm trying, I'm cutting an emotional scene, I mean, I watch dailies and I think something hits me really hard emotionally one take as opposed to another i don't know why sometimes but it does and i use that because it makes me feel a certain way so i'm hoping that the uh, i feel like at this point in my career i do know that a lot of times what i feel is what the audience is going to feel because of the experience of i i had at the beginning you don't know but i'm not always but oftentimes i'm right about like this is going to be the most emotional take well this may be take you know i watched this take and it made me cry so i'm going to use that one you know <laughs> and then you hope that the audience sees, feels what you feel. Um, I, I don't know how else to do it, you know. You mentioned kind of that seven hours of dailies and a four-minute four dialogue scene or something like that. Are you a celestial guy or are you literally building this actual sequence, the, the scene itself, as you're watching dailies and finding that stuff? Well, in a scene like that, I mean, I, there was one scene in Miami Vice that I cut from Michael Mann that had nine hours I'm not, yeah, nine hours, <laughs> nine hours of dailies for a five minute dialogue scene. And, you know, you have to be very, I mean, to me, I don't know how other people do it. There's so much and there's so many different performances and so many different angles. I have my assistants build, you know, line reading assemblies where you have all the, the readings in a row. I don't like to cut from that 
first cut from that because then you get very like robotic and it gets very like this line, this shot for this line, this shot for that line. So what I do is I'll have my assistants do that for the recutting or for going into really examining to make sure I got the best out of everything. But when I'm watching, I just make a lot of notes. And whether I handwrite them or type them, everything I feel, and I've heard Walter Mertz say this because he'll write, I think he refers to it as the banana take for whatever reason, because it made him think of a banana, you know, and it may have nothing to do with the banana, but um, I'll write every little thing that I like about every take, uh, whether it's a visual moment or it's a performance thing. It'll maybe just be some little, how the character's wiped by the camera that looks gorgeous or the cars go by or that, you know, some little piece of uh, special sauce that you put on the scene, you know, like it's like just an intricate, cool image or a cool series of images that really don't have so much to do with the storytelling, but it makes it feel like a little special, you know, but I will make tons and tons and tons of notes and then start I do will pull those pieces aside and start working with those pieces. Then, time permitting, and I did this on Detroit, and it took forever because I had a lot of a lot of dailies, a lot. But it was shot all handheld. No one take is the same as any other take, you know. But with that film, like I said, my assistants would do those select roles of the line by line thing. What I would do is go through and take every piece I liked and put it into like one big scene with repeats of action, repeats of lines, just all in scene order. And then, um, and I would call that all, all in, you know? So like it's everything I like is in one giant edit. And then I just start going through and, you know, sculpting, I guess. I don't want to say I'm a sculptor, but just like kind of, you know, that one's better than this in conjunction with that. And this works better to tell this story point, you know? And I just sort of instinctually just start whittling it down uh, and getting it to a point where I feel like I have a good scene. And then... <laughs> go back through all the line by line stuff to make sure I didn't miss anything. Because I don't know how you feel, but like I sometimes I feel like, you know, there's so much footage, you don't want to like miss a great moment. And then what will happen inevitably, inevitably is... <laughs> the director will say, hey, where's that moment? <laughs> yeah, or like you go through, you're going through a dailies later on recutting and you find some mo f moment that you didn't, that you missed, you know, and then you put that in if it warrants it. And then, and then you think to yourself, oh, my God, if I, if I miss that one moment, how many other moments did I miss? And you start, like, playing, you know, your head starts playing tricks on you. You think, do I need to go back through all the footage again or do I trust myself? And then, you know, I'll sort of start to look through things again to make sure that there's nothing I miss. But, you know, at a certain point, you have to trust yourself. And that's part of that patience thing of just going, hey, the scene's going to evolve. It's going to get to where it needs to get by the end. Yeah, but I like this. Michael used to say to me, Michael Cohen would say to me, you say there's three great versions of any scene. And you just want to make sure you show the director one of those three. I still am hoping that this, what I show the director is one of those three versions. I mean, sometimes it's not because, you know, I mean, oftentimes you're like, hey, let's go back and look at the, my original version thinking it's going to be really great. <laughs> and you look at it and in the middle you go, oh my God, that's not really great. <laughs> Can we stop? Can we stop? This isn't any good. But, you know, but it's... Uh, Sometimes you're right and you go back and you go like, yeah, let's put that. Michael Mann is big on go doing that. You're like going back. Show me this September 12th version. Show me this because he'll remember like certain things, you know, and he takes like such fastidious notes that he remembers everything. And It's a good lesson for an assistant editor right there. Remember to catalog all of the, the uh, cuts. Oh, my God. Is that important? And I don't know about you. I get I want to, I just want to, like, if I have a piece that I don't want to lose, you know, or, a, you know, I'll make copies of everything, but, and I'm really organized, but sometimes there'll be like little sections and I know I have them somewhere <laughs> and I'll put, I'll throw them in a bin, an alt bin or a lift bin. And I'm like, 
you know, occasionally I can't find them because I've done it so fast and I didn't label it properly. As Michael Kahn again would say to me, to go fast or slow down. Because if you try and go too fast, you're going to do like what Paul Greengrass says, you're going to skate over things, you know. Worry about what's in front of you. Worry about the cuts in front of you, the scene that's in front of you. Shut the rest of the world out and just concentrate on what you're doing and things will happen a lot faster than if you start stressing out about, oh my God, I have four hours of dailies and how am I going to keep up? And because that's when your mind starts fritzing out and you don't do good work and it'll end up taking twice as long as it would if you just did it right the first time. Amen. Well, I'm glad that not only did we get an interview with uh, Billy Goldenberg, we also got an interview with Michael Kahn today. <laughs> a bonus. Hey, everything I know is everything I know is from him or because of him and everything I have is because of him. <laughs> he just was so wonderful to me and took me under his wing and mentored me and with a hammer and a chisel, molded me into an it molded me into an editor. <laughs> awesome, Billy! Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, I really appreciate it. It was always fun. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, William Goldenberg, ACE. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition, and to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a film-making or film-loving friend.